Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe Blassingame, and I am your host. Today, we have Melinda Dixon. Melinda has nine years' experience working in recovery programs. She has been in admissions in both large facility dual diagnosis rehabilitation centers and addiction rehabilitation programs. She recently completed her college courses and earned her certification as an addictions counselor. Melinda is currently studying for the state certification test and will continue her studies to earn her master's and become a licensed mental health counselor. Melinda currently lives in Florida and is a practicing member of Adult Children of Alcohol. Her story is a really important one for all of us to hear because alcoholism and addiction affect everyone in the home. Melinda was a young girl in a home with an alcoholic mother, and she has been able to recover from her traumas and the effects of her family's alcoholism. We are so excited to have the conversation about adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families on our podcast and I hope you enjoy my friend. You know her as Melinda Dixon, episode 21. Let's do this. Melinda, welcome to the program. I'm so excited to have you here and uh, have your have you share your story with us. You um, have a little bit of a different story than a lot of the guests that we've had so far since you're a member of ACA, Adult Children of Alcoholics Anonymous and Dysfunctional Families. Yeah, Adult Children of Alcoholics and Dysfunctional Families. Adult Children of Alcoholics and Dysfunctional Families. <laughs> and I remember learning about this program, this 12-step program, and thinking in not understanding what the, you know, what adult children of alcoholics, like you have, you need a program for that. You know, I mean, I didn't know, you know, yeah. I didn't grow up with a, a alcoholic parent and, you know, the longer I've been sober, the more I see what that does to people. And, you know, that having a group of people to relate to on that level is so cool. And that, you know, the trauma and the dysfunction is absolutely affects us. How long have you been in ACA? So it's been like four years now. And it's like totally, completely life-changing because I did a lot of other therapies before. Nothing worked like getting into an intense outpatient program and having a therapist that had like an ACA background. Right. Nothing nothing worked before. And I tried everything before. Because you knew something was up. Yeah. I knew, I knew I was always uncomfortable. I was always anxiety-ridden. I wasn't comfortable in my body. I was hypervigilant. I was hyper-focused on everyone else but me. I was never comfortable. I was just never a comfortable person. What was your, you, when you, you went for, obviously there was alcoholism growing up, right? That yeah, was a my, piece of your childhood? A lot of my family struggles with alcohol and drugs and for sure, that's like rampant in my family, unfortunately. And did you see that growing up? I saw, I saw a lot of that. Yeah. You know, my, my mom and her sister were the admitted wild child, wild children of our, of our town. <laughs> um, everyone knew their names, you know, growing up. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in this little town in Ohio, a really small town. So it really was like they walked into a bar and everybody knew who they were. They were the wild girls. And I think my mom had us in bars when she had my sister and I, when we were very young, because after she left my dad and she met up with her her then husband, he was a musician, 
So we played music all the time. Right. And she bartended. Right. So we were in bars as very little kids, but she was doing the best she could. Right. But we were in a lot of unsafe places and we were around a lot of very unsafe men. Yeah. Yeah. I would imagine that. I would imagine that the access to children in situations like that is is definitely dangerous. You know, we talked about pre-verbal abuse and this is something we haven't talked about on the program. And I think that's really, really important thing to touch on that has carried you into your, you know, adulthood. Can you tell us a little bit about what, how that came to be, how you came to work on that? So one of the things we know that our parents do the best they can, but my parents came from abuse themselves. And unfortunately, oftentimes we carry that baggage forward. And my mom had me at 17 years old. She did not finish high school. She dropped out to have me. I was unexpected. And there are family stories of her having to be told how to hold me, hold my head up properly. Mm -hmm. And because she came from abuse herself, she didn't know how to handle a screaming baby. Yeah. And so uh, there's lots of family stories of me, you know, being left in a playpen with throw up on me and bruises and my mom running down the street to my aunt's house and saying, you know, I can't handle the baby anymore and leaving. And my aunt having to come find me and call my dad and say, you have to come home from work. You know, the baby's here. And my dad said, well, I've got to finish work. And my aunt said, well, I'm going to call some child welfare place unless you come and get the baby. There was a lot of denial in my family, too, about what was going on. But I was raised in that. My memory of living with my mom is just fear. I was always scared. Of her? I was of everything? I was scared of her reaction to whatever I may be doing. Okay. But I remember just feeling fearful. And she recently shared a story how good we were as girls, how good we were as little girls, how people always came up and complimented her like in the grocery store or something, how well behaved we her we were. And I remember look I remember looking at her and thinking, we weren't well behaved. I was scared. Right. I was scared because I didn't know if I was going to get a sarcastic put down or shamed or hugged or hit because my mom just didn't have the tools. Yeah. She didn't have the tools. So what are some of the big memories that you have carried through to adulthood from childhood? Unfortunately, most of my memories are kind of these traumatic moments that happened. And I think that's what happens to a lot of people like me that get stuck in codependency. We get stuck in trauma. You know, I've been diagnosed with codependency with complex PTSD because I have had these traumatic events that happened to me. My memories are, you know, getting shamed because I didn't share the spirograph paper with my cousin because he was using up all the paper. Yet we had scarcity in my home. We never had anything. There were times that we didn't even have milk for cereal. So scarcity was an issue for me, mm -hmm. right? So I was scared when he used all the paper. And I got a beating for that. I mean, I got hit with a belt, thrown into a closet, spinning around, and the belt hit me right across the face at one point. I, re I remember... How old were you? Unfortunately, it's hard for me to pin down age, but I feel like there's this feeling of being you know, six, seven, eight, nine, okay. somewhere around in yeah. there. Yeah. Young. Yeah. And there's, there's, um, like I fell out of bed one time and saw my mom driving away. I now know as an adult, she was likely going to work. It was at night. She worked in bars. She was probably going to work. Right. But as a child, it felt like she left us 
because I was getting abandoned a lot. I was emotionally not nurtured. I think this is a really important talk topic because so, and we've had a lot of people on this program who talk about their, I mean, complex trauma be in sex trafficking. And I mean, we have had some really heavy duty, like obvious traumas. And what we don't talk about are these traumas that happen for us that aren't as easily diagnosed as trauma. And I think they're much more prevalent than the, you know, and, and my experience also has been that I've had traumas and then the reaction to the trauma was where my trauma was. Like, yes, the big incident, whatever, but how everyone reacted to it, that's what actually I internalized as trauma. For sure. And I think we don't, I don't know that we all as Americans have a good understanding of this either. I remember the first time my therapist said to me, you have complex PTSD, you're codependent, you have uh, attachment anxiety disorder. Codependency already knew. I got that. I understood it. The attachment anxiety disorder made sense to me because I have this fear of abandonment. But I was like, what are you talking about this complex PTSD? What is that? Right. Veterans only get PTSD. What, <laughs> what does that mean? Right. And I remember going and looking it up and thinking, oh, my gosh, this is what this is for me. Right. It's about this repeated yet unpredictable right. abuse, neglect. And, and intermittent love. And intermittent love. And not ever knowing what was coming my way, which caused a lot of hypervigilance on my part, caused me to be hypersensitive to other people, but not able to identify my own feelings. And it caused me to develop coping skills, which absolutely helped me survive as a child. But they were sabotaging my adult relationships because I was reacting to adult situations in childlike ways. Mm -hmm. But it took me so long to figure that out in so many bad relationships that were just a repeat of the relationship I had with my mom. Yeah. When did, where did you go after high school? So after high school, I went into the National Guard for a while so that I could pay for college. And I did very poorly in college and dropped out. It's hard for me to focus on stuff. I, I was never a focused kid. I, I was always had a million dreams and about 18,000 different ways to get there. So doing one thing was always hard for me. So I, I tried to go to college and then I really just went into the workforce. I got into sales and was really, really good at sales because I really know how to read people. I yeah. can read people really, really well. Yeah. But because you had to. Totally had to. <laughs> you, so you grew up having to, that was your skill for sure. So really, really good at sales and, 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 and eventually built my own little small consulting firm and, and did really well but still was completely out of control in my relationships, my significant others. When did you come out? Very young, like 18, Eight, very young. Okay. And did you know you, did you know that you were a lesbian? Yeah. I knew that I was gay when I was like 14 and, and you know, I was like, man, my best friend is pretty awesome. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, and was there anything, you know, did you know gay people? Did you, was that? No, I mean, I'm going on 53 years old. So this was in 1982 ish. Okay. I was like a freshman, sophomore in high school. Yeah. Nobody was gay. I mean, that wasn't a thing that was cool back then. Were you I mean, worried you about remember, it? I wasn't, I wasn't worried because I was when you when you are raised the way that I was raised, you become very self-sufficient, very independent. Right. So 
I was definitely, I mean, you look back at some of these old videos of marches on Washington, you'll see me down there, you yeah. know, back yeah. in the in the 80s. Yeah. You know, my family was like, Shh, let's be quiet about this. Let's not talk about it. And I'm like, dude, see you later. I'm going to NYC because there's a pride march this weekend. Right. So they were not excited about this news. They were not excited. And your, your grandparents are Catholic. So that side of my family didn't find out till later. So that was kind of secretive on that side of my family. My family, unfortunately, sometimes the way we get along in my family is to gossip about the rest of the family members. Yeah. And it feels yucky to say that, that I participated in it for as long as I did. But um, I come by it honestly, as they say. Yeah. Um, I was raised in that. Um, I, I don't participate in that anymore. But most of my family found out not because I told them. Right. Because there other people in my family decided that they sh- that I, I should be told on. Right. So there was a lot of that kind of stuff happening. But there was a lot of me being like, I don't care. Like, right. I'm cool. Right. Like, I'm cool with this. It's interesting because there was a lot of fear. There was a lot of anxiety. But this, this particular, your identity being gay has been, sounds like it was a, you were very confident in that. That was not like, you were not, and especially during that time, that was not something you were worried about or shaky on. There's a exercise that I did early on when I first got into ACA. We do a workbook, much like a 12 step book, much like a lot of the programs do. And this question came up about when did I ever stand up for myself in my life? That was the only time I had ever stood up for myself to anyone in my life. If I knew the sky was blue and you told me it was red, I believed you that it was red. Right. I I had so many mixed messages right. as a child. But not this one. Untruths. And I don't know why. I don't know what it was, but you weren't going to take this away from me. And I was loud and proud. And it That's was interesting. The, it was the very first time that I stood up. And probably after that time, the only time I stood up for myself yeah. for much for many more years later to come. I wonder if it's because, and this is, you know, uh, me doing, what do they call it, Monday morning quarterbacking, but I wonder if it was because it was 100% you, like everything else was outside of you or like what people are going to do. The sky was blue. That's not you. I wonder if it was like, no, this is 100% me. This is all about me. You, this is, no one else affects this. This is just like, I wonder if there's just a sense of like control and owning it. I think there's always a sense of, especially again, this was the mid eighties. There was always a sense of this is the thing that makes me different. Mm. This is the thing in a good way or a bad way for me in a good way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For me in a good way. I remember a very early, early on, my sister who's about two and a half years younger than me had a party, and she told all her friends that I was coming to the party and that I was gay, and she told it in a way that was not cool. Like, my sister's coming and she's gay, but I'm going to let her come to the party. And it totally backfired in her face because all her friends were just curious about it. So when I got to the party, I was like queen of the party. But I remember that feeling of this makes me different and this makes me okay. And it is okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's interesting. That, uh, But I'm, I'm glad that you had that and that experience, it, you know, I think it probably saved you in, in many ways. I think it did too, because in every other way in my life, yeah. I was completely unsure of myself. Yeah. I was completely unsure of what other truths were about my family. I was completely unsure of what to do with myself career-wise. I was completely unsure of the relationships I was involved in and getting in all the wrong relationships. 
How is it, given the anxiety, the discomfort, the fear, all the things I relate to feeling, you know, not knowing what was true, what was not, how is it that you didn't get, and and family history, get addicted to substance? So I think it's interesting to know, and I've come to learn this in my own experience through my career and everything that I do now, what we know is that people that struggle with addiction, most of us come from some sort of trauma, abuse, or neglect right? And so what I see is that my drug of choice, which is people, you know, some people use food, some people use booze, some people use drugs, some people use gambling. I used people to try to fill those voids. Can you tell us about that? Like, what does that look like when, you know, for the person who's not, doesn't know what that means? So there was certainly in my own drinking, I was definitely the type of girl that would drink and party hard on the weekends and be a binge drinker because it made me more comfortable being out with my friends. Okay. Yeah. So I was drinking to be comfortable in my skin. Right. But what I was really doing was trying to find someone to fulfill me, to fill the voids of me, to rescue me. I didn't know this at the time, but I know now I was always on the hunt for that perfect girl that was going to come and rescue me. Because I wasn't going to be complete until I found that girl that was going to rescue me and make my life okay. Right. Because then it would be okay. Because then it would be okay. The problem was my blueprint of love was come here and I'm either going to put my arm around you or I'm going to make a really rude comment and shame you or I might hit you. So that's what I looked for. So what I ended up finding in all this searching was I don't think before I got into recovery, I ever had a girlfriend that was not in active addiction and completely unemotionally available and was not fully committed to me and couldn't in any way, shape or form rescue me because <laughs> they were stuck in their own addiction. Right, right. So yeah. water seeks its own level. I'm not placing right. blame. Totally. No, no, no. Totally. Water seeks its own we, level. We find people that match or mirror or whatever with our, yes. fit with our issues. And, and yes. that is, I've, you know, and it's not always a bad thing. And, you know, when you get get healthy and you do find people who are compatible or relate to you, I mean, that it can be okay if people are healthy. You know, I think, I think a lot of people, you know, wonder how we seek out, you know, how we seek out people that uh, how, how did I find how do I manage to get into a relationship uh, with my father how did I manage to get into a, you know they like don't understand because in their head they're not seeking that out they're not seeking out like okay this person she hugs she hits and she abandons okay good yeah check you check but there's something familiar about it and I think that's the piece that we get attracted to that we experience that familiarity and and that the only way to change that is an internal change. It's totally completely internal, but I think it's what happens is you don't know something until you know something. So it, it took me forever to understand this, but the way it hit me and 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 landed and made sense to me was that blueprint of love. My blueprint of love was so what I knew love was, right. was someone who took care of me, but also treated me like a toy that they played with sometimes and then put away sometimes, and someone who occasionally beat me up too. Right. That was my blueprint of love. So that's what I know love is. So that's what I go seek in the universe. Now, I didn't know any of this at the time. Right. I thought I was broken. I thought I had a bad picker. I thought I was unlovable. 
I definitely had self-worth issues. I mean, I, you know, that Smith songs, you know, you're unlovable. Like that's like my, my song of my life. Right. I thought I was broken. I thought I was broken is really what it comes down to. I thought I was unlovable, unworthy of love and broken. And I was never going to meet that girl that was going to rescue me because someone was coming to rescue me. But you were going to try. I kept trying. Yeah. I sure gave it good tries. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I always met a prettier, little less violent, little more intellectually intelligent version of the one before. Right. So how did all of this experience culminate? I think you, you mentioned when we were talking earlier about your second bottom. What was your first bottom? So my first bottom was really, really difficult. I was in a very toxic and abusive relationship with a girl that I was not in love with, nor did I even like her. <laughs> um, but I couldn't get out of it, yeah. no matter how I tried or what I did. And I remember one day saying to somebody, she's like a drug. There's nothing of value that she brings to my life. And I can't stop. I can't stop having her in my house. I can't stop seeing her. And the bottom was pretty bad. She was in active addiction. She ultimately brought some friends over to party and hang out at my house. And the very next day, while I was across the country, they robbed me. They took 925 individual items out of my home. And what they didn't take with them They left on my floor for me to clean up. Of course, she didn't admit that she knew anything about it. It took a while, but we figured it out with the police's help. And um, ultimately, she went to treatment. And I bitched and moaned and whined and complained for her to get out of treatment so she could come and fix all the shit that she left me with. Mm. Because I still couldn't break away. Yeah. A year later, I called and I went away to an intense inpatient program for people that were stuck in codependency. And I learned a lot in that program. I came home and I got a new therapist and I still couldn't completely break away from her, but I was doing better. Yeah. And at some point, ultimately I broke away from her and I was doing well with my therapist and I was going on probably five years of doing really well, being in therapy. I stopped drinking, which wasn't again, like a big issue for me, but I thought it was something I stopped drinking for eight years total. And I met a new girl. <laughs> yep. This, so this is after the inpatient. This was well after the inpatient, yeah. three years after the inpatient. Things were going well. Things were going well. I was hanging out with my friends and I was having a good life and I was doing well with work. And um, I met a girl and this girl happened to be married. And she had two children and we got very, very, very involved with each other. And we thought we were being so mature about it because her husband knew about it. We talked about it with each other like adults. We did what we thought was all the right things. And it just got more and more and more and more and more chaotic. And it's it's sad and tragic because she's amazing, beautiful, wonderful. She's an awesome girl. I love her. I thought I was going to marry her. But we were seeking our own levels. What about it? Particularly, like how, what is the, um, how did your dysfunction manifest in that situation? Aside from the fact that she was married, which obviously is a, is a definitely, you know, a big piece of it, but what, what, what caused it to not be, okay, we're going to amicably split up. We're going to get married. Why, why did it go wrong? Because if she left me, it meant that I was not worthy. If she left you like at all. Yes. To go to work. Not necessarily to go to work, but I was suspicious. Like, 
the way my mind worked mm-hmm. was that I was constantly stuck in story. We call it being stuck in story in ACA. Okay. So what it means is that if my girlfriend didn't call me today, that means that she met someone else and she no longer loves me. And now I'm anxiety ridden because the phone hasn't rang for two or three hours. Right. And now I'm going back through all my texts and all my pictures of us. And now I'm starting to just go down the shame spiral of I'm not worthy. I didn't do enough. I can't keep this going. It's a constant state of agitation and anxiety and worry and looking over your shoulder. And, And for me, it was trying to be what you wanted me to be so that you would stay with me. A friend said it very eloquently recently. He said, the amount of time I've spent in my life trying to manage your experience of me. Mm. I was like, he literally just explained my whole life. The amount of anxiety and energy and focus in my life that I put on you to manage your experience of me, to make sure that you were okay with me. Yeah. That's how I lived my whole entire life with every significant relationship I was ever in. And I was totally and completely lost and completely out of touch with my own feelings, my own needs, my own desires, wants, because it didn't matter. Right. And and that, so that relationship, how long did that last? It lasted for a long time. For We were friends for a couple of years before we got together. We dated off and on for about five years. And it was hard. It was hard for both of us. Neither one of us wanted to be apart. Yeah. But, um, you know, she said the golden words one day. She said, we're not okay. And I want us to be okay. The, the, the follow-up to that sentence is, we're not okay together and we'll never be as long as one of us is in active addiction. And so I wanted kicking and screaming to get out of my active addiction. I went kicking and screaming. I was kind of pushed into it. And what did that look like? So after I decided that I needed to get a new therapist to figure out all the things that were broken and wrong with me so I could salvage this relationship. The new therapist that I got wasn't buying my bullshit. (laughs) That's the worst. (laughs) I was convinced that she didn't like me, and she often pushed my buttons. I remember her going into her office in the beginning, and she said, how do you feel right now? How do you feel in your body? And I said, what do you mean? She said, I want to know how you feel in your body. Like, what's, what's kind of the feelings that's going on? I said, I don't understand what you mean. She said, in your body right now, how do you feel? I said, I feel like taking that stuffed animal in the corner and throwing it at you. I'm getting pissed off. Why are you asking me this? <laughs> she says, you, isn't it interesting that you're upset? Right, with being because asked. Because I'm asking you how you're feeling. Yeah. And, and immediately it took me back to an exercise that happened when I went into inpatient where we had to work out, do a psychodrama yeah. acting out thing, right? Yeah. And the therapist had gone around to everybody in my group. There was 10 of us in the group and said something to the, all of them, but didn't let me hear what she said to them. And I was one of the last people to act out my psychodrama that week. So I had seen the way the psychodrama works. You pick right. people in the group. Somebody's going to act like your mom, your dad, your sister, your ex, whatever it is. And you ask these people and they act this out for you, this this moment in your life so that you can move past it. Right. And so she said to me, okay, Melinda, are you ready to ask everybody, you know, to work this out with you? And I said, yeah. And I went to every person, will you act like my mom? Yes. Will you act like my dad? Yes. Will you act like my ex? Yes. Will you act like my sister? Everybody said yes. 
And then she said, okay, now it's time to tell them to get up and, and work with you. And I said, okay, you guys, it's time to get up. And nobody stood up. And she looked at me and she said, how do you feel right now? I said, I don't know. I don't know what you mean. And she said, you just asked all these people to help you. And they told you that they would help you, but they're not helping you. How do you feel about that? I said, I've, I got to go clean something. She said, I'll bet you have a really meticulous home. <sighs> I said, I do. So that's kind of like what happened a lot in my life. You asked for help and people didn't show up. Right. Especially after they said they would. That happened a lot. Right. So you become self-sufficient, right? Right. And you become mistrustful and you become hypervigilant and all these, as you were asking me, how did this stuff show up for me? That's how I was acting in the world. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that I had to, I need to go clean something because I've seen that a lot. And we, I think we joke around a lot about like, oh, I'm so OCD, you know? And, uh, it's interesting to see it as a coping mechanism of loss of control. For sure. It's in, and it also takes you out of the pain. So if I'm over here cleaning up the sheets that I just got blood on because one of my ex-girlfriends pushed me into a corner that cut my head open, I don't have to think about that incident that just happened because I'm now just cleaning. I'm cleaning. So it, for me, yeah. It took me out of the pain. It also paused my whole life. I was just stuck. I was stuck in trying to manage my pain, really trying to not feel right. my pain. And how effective was that? It was very ineffective. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, the funny thing is that we, we, we go to extraordinary lengths to not feel our pain and, and, and disrupt our lives in, in absolutely tremendous ways. And the truth is, is it doesn't work. We're still in pain. And, and when you get to recovery and you experience the pain and you go through it, it actually goes away much faster. But you don't believe that because you've spent your whole life staving it off. Yep. You know that your way to stop pain is to numb out. I didn't even know that's what I was doing. Right. Well, that's what, so my numbing out was TV. My mm -hmm. numbing out was cleaning. My numbing out was being really good at work. My numbing out was managing people because I'm really good at solving your life. Yeah. I'm really crappy at solving my own. Yeah. But again, I go back to my, my therapist that, that really turned this around for me and, and really I started to make all these changes. You know, I remember her saying to me one day, you know what you need to do. You just don't want to do the work. You don't want to be responsible or accountable. And I was like, screw you. What are you talking about? I'm here. I'm doing the work. I'm doing everything you told me to do. I went to the stupid outpatient program. I, I'm going to the stupid ACA thing, doing everything. And she said, Melinda, you don't want to feel the pain, the amount of time that you spend trying not to feel pain. And I was like, I don't understand. She goes, you do understand. You know what I mean. You don't want to do the work. You don't want to be responsible. And it took me a while to start to kind of process that. I was like, what does she mean? Screw her. Like, I need a new therapist, <laughs> right? What the right, hell? Right. When I'm sitting in her office every week paying for this. Right. I'm, I'm paying doing it, yeah. three and four ACA meetings a week. I'm doing this intense outpatient program. And that's the only time I was feeling relief. The only time I was feeling relief was when I was in meetings or going to my program or even in my therapist's office, even though she was challenging me. So what did she mean? She meant 
Yeah, like because you said it, I processed. So, so tell us, what did you come up with? She meant that I was going to have to feel the f***ing pain. <laughs> and I remember thinking, but did you know this that? This is awful. Like, you, when she was saying you, awful. you know, like did you know? No. I thought she was accusing me of not wanting to do the work. And I'm like, I'm doing the work. Right. I didn't understand that the work was. Got it. Feel your feelings. And I remember shortly after that happening, calling one of the uh, guys that I had met through ACA, crying on the phone. And I said, you know, I've been doing this three or four months now, and I'm I'm crying every day. This is like worse than when I came in. I go, how much longer is this going to last? He goes, you've been how long? About four months. He said, you got about eight months left. I said, I can't do this for eight more months. He said, you can. He said, but what's happening is everything that you've shoved down or numbed out or avoided and didn't feel your whole entire life is now going to start to come out and you're going to get to work through it and move through it and process it. And you're going to be okay. You're not going to die from feeling your feelings. Yeah. I remember having that conversation and not having any idea what people were talking. Yeah. (laughs) Like really, truly, like I didn't even... I didn't even, I wasn't even aware that I was do that I didn't want to feel my, like, I, I didn't even know what that meant. Yeah. Like, what are you talking yeah, about? Like the, the level of not understanding and people saying these things and it, you know, the value of being in treatment, going to meetings, having, you know, doing the work and, and being in recovery with other people is that you hear it over and over and over and over and over again. And suddenly a little piece of it starts to make sense and another piece of it starts to make sense and another piece of it. I mean, I was like, what are you talking about? What do you mean I don't want to feel my feelings? I feel my feelings. I feel pissed right now. You know, I don't like, I just no idea. And I think we get so used to, you know, just stuffing that stuff down all the way down. And there's a, there's a saying I love that, um, they buried us, but they didn't know we were seeds. And I just, that that visual for me, or the other visual for me that I loved was we've been packing, we, we're in a station wagon, which is our life, and we've been packing all our, you know, baggage all the way up to the top of this station wagon sure. full. And getting into recovery is like slamming on the brakes and it's all coming forward. For sure. In ACA, we have a there's a story about we're just carrying the family bag, that this bag is just passed from generation to generation yeah. of just your crap. But again, what keeps coming to mind for me is I didn't know what I didn't know. Yeah. I didn't know that I was stuffing and numbing out. Yeah. I didn't know that I would, I thought I just really liked TV, like a lot of kids that grew up in the seventies. Right. I didn't know that I was using TV as my babysitter to numb me out. I recently, for a project in school, I picked to abstain from watching television for a month. I'm like, this is going to be no big deal, but it's going to kind of be a big deal because I do watch TV a lot. I can do it. All right. By week two, I was pissed. I was pissed off. This was recently. This was in the last year. And I'm like, why am I so pissed off? I want to watch TV right now. Why? Because I'm bored. What? You can't find anything better to do and now you're mad because you can't use your old numbing out skill. Yeah. But I think, again, it's there's so many layers to not knowing what we don't know. I didn't know I was I had coping skills. I didn't know I was hypervigilant. I didn't know about all the abuse that I suffered. I remember the first time my therapist said my ex-girlfriend was abusive to me. 
I was like, you know, she's not. I was offended that she said that. Meanwhile, this is someone who had put her hands on me, had abandoned me multiple times. And again, I'm not taking somebody else's inventory. I was signing up on all of this. Right. No, no. I was participating in, in my part. But you don't know what you don't know until you come to it. And it took me a long time to acknowledge it was abusive. Yeah. She did put her hands on me. She did lie to me. She did not respect me or us or the relationship. She didn't nurture it. But neither did I. I was abandoning myself every time I went back to someone who wasn't nurturing me. Right. And you don't know what you don't know. Right. And I wasn't nurturing myself because I never got that skill set. Yeah. I wasn't taught how to nurture myself. So talk to us about ACA, getting into ACA and what that was like and, and about telling your story and feeling guilty about, you know, your family, feeling like you're outing your family. So it's really, really hard when you're an ACAer. We call each other fellow travelers. Fellow travelers. Because we walk, we walk the path together. It's hard in ACA to tell your truth and not villainize the people that brought you up because I, I truly know, I know that my parents did the best they could, but I was a neglected and abused child. And to say that is not easy. What comes up for you? What's coming up for you now? Sharing the family secrets. I don't want to hurt anybody. Yeah. I know my parents did the best they could. I know my parents love me. Some of the best parts of me are stuff that I got from my parents. Right. You know, my work ethic, my sense of responsibility, my sense of fairness, my sense of compassion being a good human. Yeah. I mean, I got some great skills from them, but there are things that I just did not get. And it's hard to, to tell my truth and not shame or embarrass others that are involved. But this is something that I've been grappling with. I've known for some time that I was going to do this podcast. How do I tell my truth and not villainize or shame or embarrass others? Yeah. How do I do that? How do I be honest with what happened to me and not hurt the people that I love. I think that's such a huge thing for so many people. I mean, I, I have, I have uh, so many friends that are coming to mind and where they, you know, they avoid talking about what's happened in their childhood or their life or whatever, because they can't stand the role that their family members played in it. And they love them and they, in, and they respect them in many ways. And that person was abusive and that person is an alcoholic and all these other things. And you know that they were doing the best they could, but the reality is those things happened. The reality is one of the things I've learned in ACA is that we say, we, we say, name it, don't blame it. Mm. So I know that I developed coping skills because of some things that happened to me as a child that like I said, serve me as a child, but ultimately sabotage my adult relationships. That, that was my reaction to my trauma. So I take a lot of accountability for how I've lived my own life in anxiety because other people grow up with trauma, abuse, or neglect, and they don't develop some of the coping skills that some of the others of us do, right. using drugs, alcohol, people, right. food, whatever it right. may be, right? We all have our own like, you know, path. So I... I don't have the desire nor the need to villainize any of the women I've ever struggled with, my family members, 
I take accountability and responsibility for my part. But part of being true to Melinda and the inner child work that we do in ACA, that innocence that was brought up in a really rough and tough and abusive environment, I am not being accountable and true to myself if I deny that part of my life. Not to blame, but to name it. Because if I don't name that abuse, I keep abandoning Melinda. And I can't grow if I keep abandoning myself. And I can't shine if I'm always in somebody else's shadow of what happened between us. And I've literally had to tattoo this stuff on my arm. Like I literally have a tattoo that I have to look at three or four times a day to remind myself of the things that, that I literally wear my recovery on my sleeve because it can be very easy for a child that's, that's raised in abuse to fall right back into that shadow and not meet their full potential. And, you know, I am on the second half of my life at this point and just now starting to meet some of my full potential because my life is very different from what it was four years ago. It's a complete... How? How so? I don't live in anxiety and depression anymore. I don't... Um, I, I've, I've, let's not talk about it in a way that we, I don't... My life has become rich and full. I, I not only change jobs, I change careers. I work in recovery now, which, I, which is so fulfilling to me. It's just so fulfilling. I, I thrive on it more than anything else that I do. My career is like my number one thing. I went back to college after failing out mm. in, my, in my early 20s yeah. and just completed my certification Congratulations! to become an addictions counselor, which was awesome. And I've decided to continue to go on to school or continue on with school and become a therapist. So that's shocking. I think um, some of the other ways that are different is I don't question everything that comes at me now with a distrust mm. and a scarcity and fear. I don't live in fear anymore. Now when something happens that kind of sucks, it's like, hmm, that sucked, but I can figure this out and I'll be okay. I'm more inquisitive about life rather than being fearful. That's a huge thing. I sold a home that was like anchoring me down, the home that I was robbed in. It just felt like an anchor, a noose around my neck. I sold it. I live very minimally now live in a beautiful luxury apartment, which I love. And I never thought I would do something like that. I'm so happy. I'm, I literally walk from one room to the next going, I love my place. It, it's not that I live in some beautiful, awesome place that you're going to see on TV. It's just, I'm so much more comfortable. Yeah. I'm just comfortable. Life doesn't happen to me anymore. Yeah. I am not swimming against the tide anymore. It happens for me now. Hi, I'm Peter Loeb, CEO and co-founder of Lion Rock Recovery. We're proud to sponsor The Courage to Change, and I hope you find that it's an inspiration. I was inspired to start Lion Rock after my sister lost her own struggle with drugs and alcohol back in 2010. Because we provide care online by live video, Lion Rock clients can get help from the privacy of home. We offer flexible schedules that fit our clients' busy lives. And of course, we're licensed and accredited, and we accept most private health insurance. You can find out more about us at lionrockrecovery.com or call us for a free consultation, no commitment, at 800-258-6550. Thank you. 
how did ACA change? Like, what happens in ACA? Like, what what is ACA all about? Like, what how how did you how did it transform you? I think the the part that ACA has played is it allowed me enabled me is probably a better word because we do a lot of freaking work in ACA. Yeah. It's enabled who I was always meant to be to come out because for the majority of my life, I was trying to be what you, what I thought you needed me to be so you could be okay with me. Now your opinion of me is none of my business. And when you get to that, then you can start to live your full authentic self because it doesn't matter what other people think of you. I'm not managing your experience of me anymore. Right. I'm just authentically me. So in the past year when I got this tattoo at the same weekend, I bought a motorcycle. I had a motorcycle 20 years ago, never got one again, always said I wanted another one. And I think at my age, getting a tattoo and a motorcycle in the same weekend, most people would have been like, she's having a midlife crisis. <laughs> no. She's just doing what she always was meant to be doing. There's no midlife crisis here. I'm doing what I want to be doing. And I'm okay. And I'm happy. I'm not, I'm not anxiety ridden. I'm not depressed anymore. It's a completely different way to live. I sometimes don't like using all the words that we get because we get a new vocabulary when yes. we move into recovery. Yes. And they sometimes sound cheesy. I know. But I now understand calm, peace, and serenity. You know, when I first started going into the rooms, I'm like, these people are full of shit. They're lying. I literally sat up in an ACA meeting in the first month and said, this is a cult. You guys are all crazy. Now, on the back of one of our books, it says, I am whole, healthy, sane, and safe. I am whole. I'm healthy. I'm sane and always was. And I am safe because I surround myself with people that don't threaten me any longer. And whatever that meant. Yeah. Emotionally, physically, verbally, whatever that meant. Do you sponsor women? So sponsorship has been something that's been not something I've been open to yet because of working in recovery. Yeah. I ran groups where I used to work. Yeah. So I felt I was doing service and sponsorship yeah. that way. Now that I've gotten my certification, I am going to start doing some small groups though. I was curious. The reason I ask is curious how you, how people identify that ACA is a good place for them. And the, re, the way, the way I'll preface it with this, that, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, Cocaine Anonymous, you do a lot of cocaine and you, you know, Cocaine Anonymous is a place you can go, right? You know, alcoholism, you drink a lot. Gamblers of, Anonymous. Yeah, gamblers. It's pretty straightforward. Right. Um, I mean, actually, it turns out it's not for many people, but you know what I mean. It's pretty, pretty relatively straightforward where ACA and dysfunctional families, I think one piece of the dysfunctionality of these families is that they don't know they're dysfunctional. It's totally true. So how, I mean, I'm literally thinking of people going, they would be amazed, you know, amazing in ACA. But if I came up to them and said this, yeah. they like, what are you talking about? And so I'm wondering how people find ACA or how people, I almost said qualify, not qualify, but, you know, how do people get into the rooms that way? And and when you talk to people and they're unsure, what are some of the ways that you sh show them that they belong? So one of the things that we talk a lot about in ACA is, is because 
for most of us that are involved in ACA, our boundaries were always crossed. So we don't tell you, you should come to ACA. Hmm. Okay. Because I don't know that for you. I don't know what is or is not true for you. So you don't say keep coming back. We do say keep coming back when somebody new identifies themselves as this is my first time. Keep coming back. Right. We do say that. Right. Right. But I would never go up to a friend and say, I think this might benefit you. Hmm. What happens is, and I, th- I think we have to, instead of globalizing this, go back down to your own, f- own family unit, right? So you go back down to your own family unit. Nobody in my family has changed. Nobody in my family around me has changed. Melinda has changed. And therefore, my relationships with them have changed. They've gotten very much more connected and empowering and, and, and good because I've changed, because I don't have unrealistic expectations of the people around me anymore. But what happens is, is that law of attraction thing. Mm-hmm. People see Melinda not anxiety-ridden anymore, not controlling everything that goes on, being more fun, more at ease with herself, enjoying themselves around her more. And they're like, what are you, what's going on with you? Well, I got a new therapist. She sent me to an outpatient program, and then I got into ACA. What, what's all that? And then if they start to ask me, then I'll talk about it. And then I'll say, if you want to know more about it, the best thing to do is read the, the 14 traits. And the 14 traits are what most ACAers have in common. And uh, when I read that list, I was 11 of the 14. I mean, it literally was like, this is my life on a piece of paper. Can you tell us what the 14 traits are? So we have this thing called the laundry list in ACA. And it's basically the traits that people that um, find their way in there seem to have in common, right? Yeah. So trait number one is we became isolated and afraid of people and authority figures. Mm -hmm. That was me. I made everybody an authority figure over me. So we became isolated and afraid of people and authority figures. I was afraid of pretty much everyone and because I didn't trust anyone and everyone was an authority figure. Everyone knew better than me. I couldn't trust my own judgment. Number two, we became approval seekers and lost our identity in the process. Mm. I had no identity. Number three, we are frightened by angry people and any personal criticism. Mm. I always felt like I was in trouble when someone questioned anything that I did. That overwhelming sense of I'm constantly in trouble is, is hard to live with. Number four, we either became alcoholics, married them or both, or found another compulsive personality such as a workaholic to fill our sick abandonment needs. That one was me all over. Five, we live life from the viewpoint of victims. And we are attracted by that weakness in our love and friendship relationships. I played the victim role for my whole entire life. Six, we have an overdeveloped sense of responsibility. It is easier for us to be concerned with others rather than ourselves. That enables us to not look too closely at our own faults. Seven, we get guilt feelings when we stand up for ourselves instead of giving in to others. Eight, we became addicted to excitement. That one was very difficult for me to understand. That's interesting. Yeah, I didn't get that for a long time until I remember feeling one day so alive that I was crying about this huge fight, this huge fight that my ex and I had. I remember feeling very alive in that moment. Mm. And then when I got to ACA, I was like, oh, that's some sick stuff. (laughs) Some sick, fucked up shit you got to work on. (laughs) All right, number nine, we confuse love and pity and tend to love people we can pity and rescue. Number 10, we have stuffed our feelings from our traumatic childhoods and have lost the ability to feel or express our feelings because it hurts so much. Denial. 
Number 11, we judge ourselves harshly and have a very low sense of self-esteem. 12, we are dependent personalities who are terrified of abandonment and will do anything to hold on to a relationship in order not to experience painful abandonment feelings, which we receive from living with sick people who were never there emotionally for us. That was my number one. That was my number one. 13, alcoholism is a family disease, and we became para-alcoholics and took on the characteristics of that disease, even though we did not pick up the drink. Hmm. 14, para-alcoholics are reactors rather than actors. So that was a big one for me, too, because I never acted on my wants, needs, or desires. I always asked you mm. and then went, went with the flow because I'm trying to manage your experience of me so that I will be okay. Because if you're okay, I'm okay. Right. I wonder how many people listening to this will will you know relate to those traits because I I mean even I related to I don't I don't my parents aren't alcoholics but I related to a lot of those maladaptive behaviors you can people do go for dysfunctional families even if their parents weren't alcoholic right for sure and I think um, it's one of the big topics of conversation now there's been a lot of talk about should we adjust the name a little bit because most people don't know that ACA is actually an offshoot of AA. It, ACA started because of Alateen. So the teens had their have their group, right, that their parents struggle with alcohol. So they have their own little support group. Mm-hmm. And what happened is the teens aged out. Yeah. And they were like, well, we need a group now. And it just so happened that they started this group with Tony A., who is the founder of ACA, in Palm Beach County where I live. It just oh. happens ah. to be where I live that Tony A. is from. And Tony A. wrote his own version of our 12 steps. But ACA is actually Alateens, the teens just aging out. But what they wanted to do and what the thought process is now is we want people to understand that it's, you don't have to come from alcoholism or or drug abuse or that being in your family. It's the dysfunction. Right. So I'm a good example. If I had children, they would have been raised in in this dysfunction that I have been acting out. Right. Even though alcohol and drugs were never really a problem or an issue for me. Right. The intergenerational piece. But the craziness that they would have been raised in with me. Yeah. That's the dysfunction. Yeah. I think that's a really good thing for people to know and to know that there's a support group. I, the 12 steps and, and the things that we learn and the new vocabulary and the things that we learn in inpatient and just recovery in general, every everywhere it touches our lives it just transforms it. I mean, it just absolutely transforms it. And I wish that more people would explore it or know that it's open to them, you know, um, that, you know, I, I see sometimes we'll travel or, or, you know, people are worried about moving or whatever it is. And I always think to myself, well, if I move, I'll just find a new home group and meet my new people. And it's like, I don't work, you know, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm traveling. Oh, I could go to a meeting and meet a bunch of people. And, you know, I know that my people are wherever I go. And in fact, I went to Spain and lived in Spain for a summer while studying abroad. And the meetings, I, and, you know, the meetings there saved my ass just going to, you know, and having this group. And I'm, I still am friends with people today who, who live in Europe, who I met there. And I just know that my people are wherever I go. And I, I so deeply want that for other people. I think, I think what most people don't understand is that 
these programs, these 12-step programs, are really about fellowship and maintenance. And yeah. what, what that means for me is exactly what you're just talking about, yeah. that I'm never alone wherever I go, that yeah. I've got these safe people that I can turn to. Yeah. You know, therapy is for working out your crap. Intense outpatient programs and outpatient programs are for working through your stuff and teaching you new coping skills so that you can have the life that you want to have. But for me, fellowship, the meetings is about that maintenance of sobriety that I can go do whatever I want, whenever I want with people that are safe, whole, healthy, sane and safe for me to be around that I've got this fellowship wherever I go. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't matter where I live. I could move away from my home tomorrow and I'd be okay because I can find a meeting just like you were talking about. And I can find people that get and understand what I've gone through because they're fellow travelers. They've been down that path. It's such a sense of community. I mean, it, there's it's something indescribable. You know, it's funny when you you talk about the cult aspect because I think it's such a huge issue that that people struggle with. And you know, I long ago and and I came in at nineteen, right? I, well, I went to my first meeting at fifteen, but came in at nineteen. I you know I really grappled with is this a cult and you know are they brainwashing us and is it a Christian cult and all the stuff that people talk about. And, you know, I kind of got to this point where it's like, well, the people are really cool. You know, most of them are really cool and they get me. And I don't really have to believe in any of the stuff they're saying. They're, most of them are suggestions. And uh, if it's cult, it's cult, you know. <laughs> you know, you just sort of like – I'm like you get to the point where especially being sober, and I think this is the same when you – sobriety is simply – this, your sobriety is the same as my sobriety. It's putting down our tried and true coping skills. That's it. That's the same thing. The things that alter us from the neck up that change how we feel, right? So <laughs> you get to a certain point when you've put down all your major coping skills mm-hmm. where you're like, I don't care if I have to wear a clown suit and run around naked on PCH. If that's what's going to make me feel better, I'm going to do it because I can't manage feeling like this without coping skills. I just, I, I, I refuse to do it. And I, my tolerance for that emotional, you know, like that, you know, what, what we experience as I almost, I want to say like dry drunk, but the, you know, the, the emotional duress without the work is very low, mm-hmm. particularly, <laughs> particularly 13 years in. I don't have a lot of tolerance for it. I'm like, okay, okay, you know, I, I, okay, okay, my part, okay, I've done something, okay, you know, what do I need to do? What do I just get? I, it, in many ways, actually, I find I try to move to the solution too quickly. But I think what you're talking about is the same for us, right? Even though it might have been drugs or alcohol for you. Yeah. And it was people for me, it was relationships, yeah. right? Yeah. It's emotional right. sobriety. That's exactly. What it is. And, and it's, it's emotional the same. sobriety. It's the same it thing. is the same. It's the same. It's that you have figured out how to self soothe, mm-hmm. how to create and live within your boundaries, how to be whole, healthy, sane, and safe. And whatever way that works. I and I, I love you talking about like the cult aspect of it because I was very worried about that in the beginning <laughs> and the religious aspect. And, yeah. and and I'm glad that you reminded me of that because I am an atheist. And, and it's scary to go into a 12-step program with everything we think we know about 12 steps to say, you know, I'm an atheist or I'm agnostic. But again, one of the things I love about ACA is 
We believe in a higher power. And I had to come to what does that mean for me to feel comfortable in those rooms? Because there is a lot of God talk. There is. Around the rooms. There is. And and we're very careful in ACA when we talk, when we read from the readings or from the book or whatever. It's all higher power, higher power, higher power. Because God for you might be different than for yeah. somebody else, which is yeah. fine, right? But that was a turning point for me too. Like, you're not going to get me in this room and suddenly I'm going to believe in God. It's not going to happen. Right. You know, it's never been something in my life and it's not going to be moving forward. But what happened for me is I I had an understanding of higher power that opened me up to say, I want what these people have, which is what you said a moment ago, right? What happened for me is somebody said to me, your best thinking got you here. We've all heard that, right? (laughs) Your best sick thinking. Yeah got you to the point where you haven't worked for four months, don't have a job or in a toxic relationship, and you're sitting in a chair in a room that you've never been in before, snot rolling down your nose, crying uncontrollably. Mm -hmm. Your life is unmanageable and out of control, right? And I remember somebody telling me about that. You can't trust your own best thinking. So for me, what higher power became was, okay, these people seem pretty solid. So The more I'm around them, the more I want what they have. So for me, higher power is going to be my therapist, my group, and my sponsor. Because these people all do appear to have what I want. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to go to them and ask for permission or validation. It doesn't. What it meant for me is when I was struggling with something, I would just put it out to my universe. And my universe became my group, my therapist, my sponsor. And I would just see what would come back. But what was coming back to me was messages from healthy people who had walked the path before me. And so I knew I could trust it. Yeah. So it enabled me to start to see things in a different light, started to change my own thinking. And then I was able to start to trust the people around me because they proved themselves to be trustworthy to me. So this whole shift started to come where eventually I could start to trust my own thinking. Right, right. I remember that shift where for me too, where it's like, okay, I think... You know, you go from like your first thought is, you know, they talk about your first thought when you first come in, you know, your first thought is terrible. Throw it out. You know, whatever it is. Okay. Your second thought, terrible. Also throw that out. (laughs) And uh, and eventually, eventually you're like, okay, first thought bad. Second thought's getting better. And then, and then eventually you're like, hey, my first, like I can actually trust what's coming to mind. And every now and again, I'm like, that is a terrible idea, Ashley. But, um, (laughs) but you know, you, it's, it, they're fewer. They're certainly fewer. And that, that does, that, um, that does change and you learn to trust yourself. I, I fear so often that the God peace, mm hmm. Turns people off. Turns people off. And I, you know, and I don't want to be, you know, for lack of a better word, evangelical in, in, you know, selling the 12 steps because there are other ways of getting sober. There are, you know, there really are. And whatever works works for you, truly, um, it's just what worked for me. And I know many people it's worked for, but I, if that's the one thing keeping people away from this community, I just, I, I beg you beg you to trust that it you know that 
<laughs> it will be okay. You don't have to pay attention to that, that you can be an atheist. You can be agnostic. And, you know, sometimes I do cringe every now and again, you go to a meeting and it's, there's a lot of God going on and, and, <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and you cringe, right? Like you, you're like, I hope no one's new here. That's what I always think. And, and a lot of the time I'll, when that happens, I'll share and I'll be like, I came in here and I didn't believe in any of that hocus pocus. And, you know, and I just share cause I'm like, oh my gosh, but you do, you know, you see, <laughs> you see on the wall for, you know, an alcoholics and I was like, third step, uh, made a decision to turn your will and life over to the care of God as you understood him. And I remember looking at this like, okay, I am shooting heroin. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like on what planet is this step going to do anything? I don't even know what that means. What do you mean turn my care? You you, You give my keys to God? You want me to throw my keys in the air? What does that mean? Like this is the most insane. And and I had to come to that higher power piece. When I remember there was some one person who said to me, Ashley, I want you to go to the beach and uh, I want you to look at the waves and I want you to make them stop breaking. And I said, uh, you know, okay, well, I can't do that. And they said, well, then that's a power greater than you. Mm, that's uh, awesome. Yeah. And I was like, all right, well, okay, I could start there, right? So then it was like pray to the ocean. And I like, you know, for me, I'm I'm kind of a nerd that way. And so the ocean, I, I know a lot about, you know, different ecosystems and whatever. So like I, from a scientific perspective, I was like, well, the ocean is a grand place that has all these amazing ecosystems. So like when I think about it as a power greater than myself and and praying to it, like I really see it as a magical thing. Yeah. And I could do that. I could do that. I, I, I will tell you, I had a sponsee once who <laughs> she was like, she, um, I said, you know, we, we got to find a power greater than yourself. And, and she's like, you know, I don't believe in God and uh, this. And I said, okay, well, just a power greater than you, you know, and I came up with the normal ones that we usually throw out. And she said, well, what about the United States government? And I looked at her, I was like, uh, I mean, it is a power greater than itself, <laughs> but I'm not sure I'd use that. Yeah. You know, but just funny. <laughs> it was so funny. It was like, I'm stopped. You got me. I don't know. I mean, you can pray to them all you want. Good luck. I think you're in a long line of people who are praying to the United States government. Yeah, really. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I just, I, I really, I love the story of your transformation from that and and the codependence piece. What do you think... I went to treatment for – I went to the Meadows for love addiction, did mm-hmm. my own psychodrama because I could not stay away from substances until I dealt with that piece because that piece was too painful to not use substance, period, end of story. I just couldn't do it. And so I, so I did do that and I did do a lot of work around that. What do you think the difference between Codependence Anonymous and ACA – would be because ACA has a lot of the codependent piece to it. And that was a lot of like what you you dealt with. And in my head, codependent people certainly have dysfunctional families. So I haven't been to a CODA meeting for many, many, many years, although it was something I absolutely tried in the beginning when I was, I mean, this is going back 10 years ago, right? When I was really struggling, maybe even longer. So I don't, I don't know that I can speak to what's the difference between CODA and ACA because I haven't been to a CODA meeting for years and years and years. But I, I can tell you what we concentrate on in ACA mm-hmm. is we concentrate on, they call it the inner child work. Some people might be more comfortable calling it your lost innocence, right? Mm-hmm. If you come from trauma, abuse, or neglect, 
what skills did you develop that helped you survive as a child, but now are sabotaging your adult relationships? That's the true nature of the work that we do in there. And a lot of my AA and NA friends will say, one of my friends in particular, I'm thinking, who was involved heavily in AA before she got into ACA, she said, AA put the cork on the bottle and saved her life. She said, Al-Anon saved her relationships. She said, ACA saved her inner child, saved her lost innocence, that she was able to work through that deep, 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 deep stuff that she was never able to work through in the other programs. I don't think that most people, first of all, they don't know about ACA. Yeah. It's not as popular as the other programs. I don't think they have a clue of the amount of healing to your lost innocence, whatever that is for you Yeah, that we do in those rooms. You know, most of my friends in ACA came from NA or AA, and obviously those programs work. They got yeah. sober there. Yeah, I mean, sure. saved their lives, but they didn't work through the why did I get here in the first place. Right. They were able to change coping skills. Yeah. But they never got to why. Like the deep. Right. And that's what I think ACA, ACA does. ACA figures out why I got here, how I got here in the first place. Right. What are some of the common ways or things that you see in ACA for people coming in, aside from obviously substance abuse? What do you mean? Like why they're coming in? Yeah. Like coping mechanisms. Like what brings them there? Like what? Are- oh, all of us come there because we went through a f-ing breakup. You know, <laughs> okay. Everybody that listen, I'm 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 overgeneralizing, right, right, right. right? But you know, that's you don't you don't come into ACA going life is great and wonderful. What are you guys doing here? Well, for sure, for sure. You come into ACA going, you know, I just f-ed up another relationship. I just met the third guy who stole from me, lied to me, cheated on me. Like, what's wrong with me? What is wrong with me? It's, it's you're totally, completely broken. You are unlovable. Why? Why do I keep doing the same behavior over and over and over and over and over? And we have a lot of the universe doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. One of my friends in ACA one time said, I just couldn't shake this guy. This guy was totally bad for me, completely toxic. I couldn't shake him. He calls me from jail one day, one day. And said he got a year in jail. So she looks up at the universe yeah. and she says, I got a year. I got a year to shake this guy because he's going to be in jail for a year. Yeah. The universe did for me what I can't do for myself, right? <laughs> yes. So that's why most of us, most of us end up in ACA because of, I mean, broken relationships or that same relationship over and over and over that's toxic and abusive just with a prettier girl or a more handsome guy. Yeah. Cause it's, cause our, our family relationships are our, are our blueprint. For sure. Absolutely. For sure. But that's, that's how most people end up in ACA. It's broken relationships and you can always see the new, the new people oh, yeah. crawling, crying, snot everywhere. She just broke up with so-and-so. Yeah. You know, we all know yeah. it. We all know. Right. Cause y'all evolved. That's how we all got there. Yeah. 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 Nobody comes in there on a winning ticket, my no. friend says. No, yeah, nobody, yeah, that's what we say that. No one comes in here on a winning streak <laughs> right. uh, in, in AA too. Yeah, no, it's true. It's true. And yet I think for most of us who've, who've accrued recovery would say that it's the best thing that's ever happened to us. I think for sure. I remember one time my therapist saying to me, your ex has given you the best gift you've ever been given in your life. 
she's pushed you in to do this work. And at the time my therapist said that, it was, again, one of those, F- you, I think I need to find a new therapist moments. <laughs> this is just not working out between you and I. Yeah. You keep telling me all this bullshit. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But yeah, it forced me to change. And it was uncomfortable and painful. But the alternative was yeah. to stay yep. in uncomfort and pain. Well, that's the thing. That's that's the the funny thing is... <laughs> You, you're like, oh no, that's going to be uncomfortable. It's like, what, what, what's going on right now? I mean, right now is un- I'm uncomfortable. This is uncomfortable. You know, I'm gonna. It's a, just a different. You know, it's the devil we know. That's it, that's the difference. That's the difference between staying in our discomfort and 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 it isn't as painful as you think it's going to be. It's also, I think, a lot of fear of the unknown. Like we were talking a moment ago about the God aspect of it, yeah. right? People don't know that we truly, in ACA, we truly do mean higher power. Yep. That yep. could mean a tree to you. Yep. I don't care. Doesn't Nobody's going to—I am an atheist and a national speaker for ACA. I promise you yeah. all are welcome, right? Yeah. So the other—I think the big part of fear is fear itself, right? The fear of fear kept me yes. stuck. Right. The fear, the of, fear, fear of fear yeah. kept me stuck. The fear of anything, right? Yeah. But one of the things, it's on my voicemail, it's on my, you know, Facebook, it's it's actually in my emails when I send email to people. Everything you want is on the other side of fear. And that's not a quote that I made up, that's somebody else made it up, but everything you want is on the other side of fear. So if anything that I'm sharing today or talking about rings true to you, and you want out of this life of anxiety and depression and PTSD and comfortable in your body and being overwhelmed 24-7, 365, I promise you everything you want is on the other side of that fear because I don't live in that anymore. I don't live in that. Even when I get triggered or stressed like we all do, it's so easy now for me to say something's going on, you're a little triggered, you're a little stressed. Look at your arm if you need to. What's your arm and I say? just look at my tattoo and I'm, it's like soothing. What's I'm it, okay. What's it, what's it, so these, these are the things that are important to me for my recovery. So I put them on my arm. Invite love, crave joy, own courage, release fear, stay present, and accept growth. I love it. I need to tattoo that on my forehead. So all the things that were important to me, you'll have to pay me your royalty because I made this up. <laughs> I love it. I love it. But when I'm stressed, triggered, trauma, when I'm when I'm scared, when I'm nervous, own courage, okay. When I'm not in the present moment, stay present. When something's happened that's really not comfortable for me, got to go see the boss about something that you're nervous about. Accept growth. <laughs> Accept growth. It's okay. Yeah. You know, you have good people around you. You can trust these people. And they right. may have to tell you something that's not going to feel really great right now, but it's okay. Yeah. Accept growth. That's a hard thing. That's a hard thing. And I think the other is like the inviting love. Love is scary when you have a new blueprint of love, when yeah. you've thrown out the old blueprint. Right. What's this going to look like Is now? it going to work? Is it going to work? How am I going to do this? Yeah. So you have to be open. And I think the craving joy is... Um, That's my favorite one. Crave joy is probably my favorite too, but the reason I had to put it on arm is because we do a lot of work in ACA. Yeah. ACA is not for pussies. <laughs> and, <laughs> and when you come out the other side of it... You've been doing a lot of work for a long time, even though even work you didn't even know you were doing. It's a lot of work to keep yourself safe in isolation, which is what most of us do. Yeah. And to come out of that 
means life is going to be different. It's going to be more fulfilling and you have to kind of crave joy again. You have to let go of the work, which is very hard because it keeps us safe. And the best way to do that is to surround yourself with people who are doing the same thing. For sure. And that you can go have fun with and that you can trust. Yeah. And then you do and you go, wow, that was fun. And I trust you guys. And yeah, this feels good. And life is good. And life is good. And I think the true, the true testament to this craving joy, and this is going to sound so silly to you guys, but this is a testament of surrounding yourself with people that get and understand you and being safe and being able to become who you want to be in the world. Last weekend at my Saturday meeting that I go to for ACA, I was on the way out the house and I have these pairs of tennis shoes that I have like eight different pairs of these tennis shoes that I wear all the time. Right. Same style, but they're all like different Different. patterns or whatever. And so I was walking, I put one pair on and I was like, man, I really want to wear the other pair with this outfit. And I was like, I I really, I really, okay, just forget it. Just wear the one pair you got on, get all the way to the door. And I'm like, I really want to wear the other pair. Go back to my closet and I go, I put the other ones on. I get to the door again. I go, I really want to wear them both. I want to wear both pairs. And one is a checkered pattern and one is stripes. Go, I'm wearing them. Who cares? This seems so silly, but this is the ability now for me to just be silly and be who I want to be. So I literally went to my ACA meeting with two different shoes on. Same style of shoe, just two different patterns. And everyone there was like, that is so cool. Like you're starting a new trend. And I'm like, no, just let me be me, man. And I knew if I was going to do it, I'd be safe doing it around you guys. And you guys wouldn't make fun of me or shame me if I did it. I bet people thought they came like that. People thought they came like that. People thought it wasn't any big deal. And one of the guys came up to me and said, you know, I really love the shoes, but I love what's in them more. Mm -hmm. For real. I love that. That's some for real stuff. That's some for real. That's the stuff that goes on though. That's the stuff that goes on. And you, you touched a moment or you touched a while ago on, you know, we don't sometimes get what we needed from the folks that brought us up, but what we can find in therapy, in counseling, in meetings, in groups is people that can fulfill these roles that weren't our natural family. But I do have father figures in ACA and I also have my father, but my father can only do what he can do. And I can get some of what a, what I, what I envision a father might do. I can get that from some of my ACA guys yeah. and I can get the mothering from my sponsor and the nurturing. Right. And I can get the sibling friendship from the girls that I hang out with in ACA that we go run around and do things together. Right. Those things that I need to have a fulfilling life can just be given by maybe not the people I was born to, but the people that I've chosen to walk the path with. Yeah. Yeah. It's a scary prospect, but once you, all you have to do is show up. I think that's the biggest thing is that that's, I think it's more than half the battle is just showing up. It takes takes tons of bravery and courage, own courage, like it says on my arm. It takes tons of bravery to walk into the rooms and nobody there is going to judge you what's not coming down your face because that's how we all arrived. Yeah. 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 I was talking to a woman. She said, well, if I go into an AA meeting, they're going to know I'm an alcoholic. I said, well, uh, everyone in there is an alcoholic. So they're going to be relieved that you are as well, you know, just so is that all the stories that we tell ourselves that hold us back. That's, that's what being stuck in story is, right? That's being stuck in story and shame and shame to me is the number one 
emotion that keeps people stuck in addiction. I remember a few years ago, one of the girls coming up to me going, God, your eyes look so pretty. I go, well, I have makeup on. You've never seen me in makeup. Why haven't you ever worn makeup? I said, I just spent the first year here crying my eyes out. <laughs> I don't have to cry every day anymore. So you guys actually get to see me in makeup. Oh, that's like so these funny. are these little subtle fun yeah. things that happen though, right? Like we all come in there looking <laughs> totally. like a mess. Totally. You know, you put a nice pair of shoes on and everyone's like, gosh, you clean up real nice. Yeah. Like, well, what do you, was I, yeah. the first year I was here, dude, yeah. I barely got peeled myself off the couch. <laughs> Got in the car to get here. Right, right. It was, I mean, oh God, mess, right? Yeah, an absolute mess. But it's, but, but it's transition. Yeah, is beautiful. And and I will say that I've fallen apart and gone back to that being that mess in recovery. It's not a straight line. No, and and that that was okay too. And I was embraced as well. And there was solution there too. And there was new solution. You know, I was worried. They were like, oh, you're just going to tell me to pray. You're just going to tell me to this. Just, you know, people, no, there was new solution. There were, there were new 12-step programs. I was like, oh, my God, if I belong to one more 12-step program, I'm going to have to quit my job. But- I think that safety, though, is so important, that safety of, again, in ACA, we call them fellow travelers. Or if you're in a, if you're in a, an outpatient program, it's your group, right? You yeah. have the safety of these people that get and understand what you're going through. Because they've been through it too, right? Yeah. And that's that comfort to fail, lapse, relapse, and not be shamed and judged, but to have somebody look at you and go, man, I get it. I get it. I did it. I've done it. And we all slip. I mean, I spent the first year in ACA talking about nothing but my ex. For sure. You know? For sure. And I don't have any of my friends that were there have ever shamed me for going back to the hardware store for bread. Yeah. The first year I was oh, going yeah. to the hardware store for bread. Oh, man. I, I got back with my ex. I went to love addiction. I went to the Meadows for love addiction and got back with him and tried to bring him to family week. Of course. <laughs> I was like, are you doing any? But, you know, it, but, you know, as you said, each individual relationship was an upgrade from the last. Yeah. And each learning lesson was a valuable value and some of the most painful learning lessons. I remember I learned to leave. I picked up and moved to another state, which, you know, it's a bit of a geographic, but I ended up in uh, Southern California. I left the boyfriend. Best thing I ever did. I, I Literally, I had never done that. Yeah. I'd never been able to do it. And I was like, this is no longer working. And from that point on, and it was such a cheating relationship, there was so much, the checking the phone, the checking, yeah. oh, it was just like, and you know that feeling when like the phone rings and you, your stomach drops and you're like, oh God, and you know, you know what you're going to find, whatever, all that stuff. And it just went away. When I left, the, like when I finally had enough, I had the tools because I had gone to treatment. Yep. It wasn't in vain that I had gone to treatment. Yeah. I had, I, I knew what to do and- the feeling came over me of you cannot control people. They're either going to love you and treat you well or not. And that is out of your control. The only thing that's in your control is if you stick around. And again, you know, again, I'm not going to say that the next relationships are super healthy, but that one piece, that one jealousy piece went away. But I think that's what happens when you, when you start into recovery and you go down this new road, right? It's not a straight line. No. There's lots of bumps, hills, Trees, logs, yeah. and yeah. you got to climb over like all this work Moguls. that you have to do. <laughs> yeah, ponds, you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, but what you're Sinkholes. doing is it's little tiny 
changes yep. that slowly push you towards who you were always meant to be. Because again, for me, I was never meant to be a person who was stuck in anxiety and depression and trying to cope with PTSD and, and all of that. That's not who I was meant to be. Right. I was meant to be who I am now today. Happy, joyous, and free, having fun, enjoying life, got my career that I want, living the way I want to live. It's so, but it's not a straight line is what I'm getting at. It's just, it's little incremental changes that don't even feel like changes when they're happening. Yeah. But you look back on these moments like that you're sharing with yeah. and go, I did that. Yeah. I did that. It, how pivotal it was. And how pivotal it is. It doesn't seem like it at the moment, but you look back and go, man, I did that. Like, I did that. Yeah. And it's okay if you looked like shit doing it too. Yeah. And like, you probably did. Yeah, yeah. I remember I remember standing up a couple times for myself. The story isn't really important, but I remember standing up a couple times for myself and then immediately contacting my uh, sponsor as I was sitting on the floor of my bathroom, bawling my eyes out, going, what did I just do? <laughs> uh, you know, but that therein lies the, I did it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I still got a ton of feelings about it, but here's this safe person to help me talk that out and not judge me. Say, you did it. You did this really hard thing and you're okay and you're still alive. Yeah. And you're better for it. The other thing that happened recently is my therapist said, and this hit me in the face big time because I had to do something hard. The universe is going to keep asking you if you're sure you don't want this until you tell it you don't want it. Hmm. So she said, you're going to have to go do this hard thing that you don't want to do. That's a really interesting thing. Dude. The universe is, yeah. The I'm like, universe is going to keep asking you if you sure you don't want this. Right. Until, until you, you tell it, I don't want this anymore. Because I recently found myself attracted to someone who's in a relationship, who's married. And I'm like, I don't want this. Why is this happening? What is going on? Like, what is this about? talked it out with my sponsor, talked it out with my therapist, figured out what was going on. And I had to say, yeah, universe, I don't want that. Thank you. I'm good. And it was scary. But let me tell you, this wave of relief came over me and I was okay and I was fine. And it was one of those standing up for myself moments. Yeah, I'm sure. I don't want this anymore. Yeah. You don't have to keep asking me. Yeah. I'm good. I'm good. I changed. Yeah. I want this now. Right. And it'll come. Yeah, it will come. It will come if you do the work. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming and sharing your story. It's really important that people hear it. And um, I'm really grateful for your authenticity, vulnerability, and, and sharing this time with me. Thanks for having me. The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast, would like to thank our sponsor, Lion Rock Recovery, for their support. Lion Rock Recovery provides online substance abuse counseling where you can get help from the privacy of your own home. For more information, visit www.lionrockrecovery.com backslash podcast. Subscribe and join our podcast community to hear amazing stories of courage and transformation. We are so grateful to our listeners and hope that you will engage with us. Please email us comments, questions, anything you want to share with us, how this podcast has affected you. Our email address is podcast at lionrockrecovery.com. We want to hear from you. 